to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, finishing up the end of that chapter and um, going into the first part of um, chapter 2. Sometimes the way that they divided up the scriptures... uh, it's not necessarily an error or anything, but actually the, sometimes the, the beginning of a new chapter actually fits with the end of another chapter. You gotta, uh, I remember in some classes we talked about how they did that, and there was um, it's no kind of equation or anything, but they, sometimes the, there was a, the way that they broke it down, it could be changed, and you could, you could include another five, six, seven verses sometimes that fits with the context of the previous, and so we'll see that today. We've been learning about these Corinthians and their view of Paul, um, plus some other voices who have come in with a more polished, more professional style of speaking. These, what we'll see later on, he, he terms them as um, super apostles. And so um, these Corinthians had viewed Paul as weak and feeble. Um, he was a very afflicted man. They, they knew his story. They knew of the, the shipwrecks and all the, the horrific things and the afflictions that had hit Paul in his life. And um, they had discredited Paul's authority, not, not the whole church in Corinth, but some that had very eloquent voices and very professional, polished voices. And in those days, those people would be the ones that were esteemed in that crowd, in that culture, and that had spilled over into the church where that was what was esteemed in the church. Um, to make matters worse, in his former letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul made plans to visit them, but some circumstances had changed, and they were actually holding this against Paul. He did not get to visit them, and we're going to hit that in just a few minutes. You'll get to see what I'm talking about. It's at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. But they used this as evidence against him, saying that he's a liar, that he's double-minded, that um, he makes plans and then doesn't follow through. And that's when we get to the end of this section, you'll see that that yes, my, my yes is yes and my no is no. Um, I wouldn't say yes and no at the same time, so it's a little um, difficulty in the language there, but that's what he's referring to. You, you think that I say some things and I don't follow through with it. You think that I don't have a well-organized plan. It's not that, it's that Life interrupts those plans sometimes. It's that circumstances allowed by God um, rise to the top and plans change. So why are you so upset? Why are you so angry? Why are you discrediting me, the one who come and gave you the gospel? And so that's what Paul's getting to in this first uh, couple of chapters. They use this as evidence against him. So this section is a defense where Paul is explaining that God allowed different circumstances and he's also trying, writing to show his love and care for them, as we'll see in this first little section, as well as his faithfulness to the gospel through difficulties instead of the things that they valued and prized. So there's this whole church that, that values and esteems these things, this whole culture that does that. And he's saying, I come to you in, in weakness. I come to you in suffering and difficulty. But haven't I been faithful with the gospel? And if so, I would be... Um, at, the, at the judgment day, I would be the one who would be um, praising what God has done in you, and you, instead of despising me, would be praising what God has done in you as well, and what God has done in us together. So he's, he's using this first chapter to just bring that out. So there's this issue here um, going on where it's, it's, he's addressing heart matters versus travel plans. They're holding that against him, just that, the idea of travel plans, you've got a problem, but he's going, no, no, actually, this reveals some heart matters. This happens in the church all the time. Little, you've heard those little arguments over something small. Um, hey, you know, uh, it's really, really cold in there. This is the, the, the problem. I just can't stand that. Man, man maybe that's, there, there's places in the world, a lot of places, where it's freezing all the time, right? Or it's desperately hot all the time. They don't have air conditioning. That's not a major issue, but it can reveal heart issues. And so um, Paul is also writing in this section to reveal God's faithfulness, and you'll see that in 118, to both of these parties. So this whole section, twelve, uh, starting in verse 12, going through chapter 2, verse 4, is responding to some things that Paul has heard through Timothy. Timothy had made a visit, 
And he had kind of taken some notes down like, man, they've got a lot of things against you. And Paul's responding to them in this. So um, to start out, I want to kind of set this by just asking you, what is impressive to you? What is impressive? What impresses you? Um, What catches your attention? What are the things that pique your interest that therefore allow you to be influenced by them? Just think through that. I think it happens very subtly. It's in the subconscious. We don't even notice it. But there are things that pique our attention, that catch our eye, that attract us, that we're impressed by. And I think that we begin to want to be like that. We want to follow that pattern. We, we want to be like that. Um, this is exactly what Paul's dealing with. The Corinthians were impressed and intrigued by worldly status and power and prosperity and achievement. Those impressive things were what they were allowing to influence them, not the things that God had sent to them, not, not the centrality of the gospel message. Because if so, you wouldn't have all these problems with me. You would see, oh, that fits exactly in with this Jesus you've told us about, his sufferings the way that he was treated, the way that he went through affliction. Man, that's exactly what your life looks like, Paul. That substantiates your message instead of discrediting it. But they were being lured away by what was trendy, who who was the next new powerful voice. So in our time, we want to see this, to see um, in a culture that is fascinated by the the flash-in-the-pan pop-up successes, a culture that's intrigued by what is trendy, Um, what is momentarily popular for what's sometimes just innovative, even when it's at the cost of long-term consistency. Um, And and for that mentality to spill over into the church mindset, we must ask, what are we evaluating as being worthy of influencing us? What are the criteria that I'm measuring? What are we evaluating as being worthy of influencing us versus what are the things that God would have us influenced by today? And so we went through a, a, a section uh, on kind of a healthy church, and we looked at that book um, by Jared Wilson, um, the gospel, um, I think it was the gospel-centered church or um, the gospel-something church. There's a lot of gospel-hyphen books. And so he brought up some of those characteristics that churches tend to measure success by this, is that really what the church should be measuring success by? So we'll, we'll hit on that. Um, what we've learned about the makeup of the Corinthian so far, we've seen um, that they treasure and they prize those um, polished professional things, things that, that look like worldly success, and then that, that's spilled over into the church to where they think that's what the church should look like. And you can see in America, that's exactly what we do. We, we kind of have borrowed from the business mindset that success means bank accounts, buildings and, and butts and seats. That, that's success for the church, those, those three things. And so what, what's your uh, budget? What does your buildings look like? And how many butts are in the seats? And so those three, three things. Um, here's the motive, the motive that, uh, and the things that we'll see through the book. Christ is our true treasure, and gazing and captivation in him is where we find our salvation and eternal life. And then secondly, God's paradigm is not our own. God uses weakness in us to show forth his own glory and power. And that's what Paul's trying to get across to them. And identification with Christ has produced suffering, weakness, which in turn leads to life and salvation for others. And that's what Paul's saying to them. The questions that we, uh, I've put before you each week, these two things just to keep before us. How can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride and self-seeking and comfort? And then what implications does that truth have on me loving Christ and making him known to others? If I am unknowingly obsessed with I'm being impressed by something, I start pursuing to to get that or attain that or be like that, and in that I become prideful or comfort-seeking, self-seeking. That's completely the antithesis of the cross. And so how can I follow the Jesus of the cross if I'm very unconsciously following elements of pride and elements of comfort and elements of self-seeking because then I don't even notice the needs of others. So Paul's getting at that. Um, let's, let's read this, um, the um, section here, chapter 1, verse 12 through two, chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience 
that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, by the, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of the Lord Jesus, that's talking about judgment day, anytime you see the day of the Lord Jesus, that's talking about future judgment day, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, that 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 all would take place, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. And he's what he's talking about there. This experience of grace is not what we're thinking of, like ooh, some some supernatural experience. It was actually um, in chapters eight and nine that 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 grace is talking about a love offering, a financial monetary offering that's referred to. And so when he says that in, in verse fifteen and sixteen. I wanted to travel through there that you might get a second opportunity to give to the poor in Judea. Because you wouldn't be thinking about yourselves, would you? You wouldn't be thinking and focused on your own prosperity, would you? Surely you want to be giving in this second opportunity of grace. So I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to come back and have you send me on my way more that you would support me, right? When I go back to Judea, you'd want to do that. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. So he's saying there's this this trustworthiness in Christ. Our, our message hasn't changed. Uh, we brought forth the message of the gospel. You're being distracted by my words on whether we're visiting or not, and you're misplacing the gospel. We, we find in Christ, it's always yes. We've brought that blessing to you. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ as he has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Father, we pray that you would use your word, Spirit, we pray that you would use the power that you have to change, to transform, to open our eyes to see, to understand the depths of the spiritual nature of these words. As Paul spoke to this specific crowd in Corinth, and that that would go and spread the implications of that, and the significance of that to every church that would read this in the future, to our day, that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So um, the first thing that we see there is that Paul's using this word boasting. Now, you need to know that Paul uses the word boasting um, 55 times in his letters. So in all Paul's New Testament letters, well, there's several of them, um, he uses it 55 times. That's kind of a weird word when you think of humility as being the thing that um, is usually um, speaking about Christ, right? Like not boasting. So why would a guy use the word boasting 55 times? Um, He uses it 29 times in this letter. So if I'm the Corinthians and I'm, I'm hearing this letter read, which they would do, they would read it over and over and over. Man, he's, he's talking about boasting a lot. We, we kind of get the hint. You're landed on pretty thick, Paul. Like 29 times in this letter, you're mentioning boasting. And so we have to see there that um, he, he's making a point to them. Um, why would Paul use this term boasting so many times in a letter? 
What do we know about them? And what is Paul trying to get them to see? First of all, we have to remember that the bigger context of the ancient world. So what were around the world at that time, not specifically Christianity, excuse me, but but the other religions and the other polytheistic religions, um, the other thoughts out there in philosophies, that if you are being blessed by the different gods, that, that your life would be filled with prosperity, right? That, that if you, also karma and those type of things, where it's this idea of if you do good things, the, these gods are watching you, and they will bless your crops. They will bless your work. They will bless you with many children, right? And they will bless you with financial prosperity. Add to it a city like Corinth that we've learned is being built up, kind of like a booming area of, uh, of a city that you go into, and it's kind of, it's kind of crummy as you're driving around. And then you're like, oh, man, here's a new area that's just booming. And, and they've got all these new businesses, and it's kind of this, this real prosperous area. So Corinth was like that, and they were thinking, um, that's what success is. That's what life looks like. That's what's flourishing and life-producing. So those people that were facing all kinds of evidences of affliction and suffering, the gods must be against you. Even, even spilling over into the church, like even if this one true God would be with you, like why are you going through so much suffering? Look at these guys. Look how they're dressed. Look at their success. They fit exactly in with what's winning in our culture. And so Paul's addressing this. And so he's, he's using this word boast because um, this was the pervasive mindset in Corinth. Um, Paul is trying to flip their view on what one might boast about. You're boasting in, in those people, in that whole mindset, and he's going to flip their view to where maybe humility and suffering and, and being connected to Christ, loving one another, that would be what would be worthy of boasting in. He flips it again to a broader boasting in, in, that, in that last verse, in verse 14 there, if you, if you notice there um, in that last little section, um, I'm sorry, don't mean last section. It's on the last section in my page. Um, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. On the day of judgment, you're going to boast. Oh, look what God has done through Paul and, and Sylvanus and Timothy. Look what God has done through their message. Because right now, they're not boasting. They can't stand Paul. And we, even though I know that you've got all these problems with me, I'm going to boast. Look at the work that God has done here. Humility love, generosity, justice. Those are the things that now I see in these people. Thank you, Jesus. We boast in what you've done, Christ. That's what he's getting. He's trying to flip that paradigm on them. He's using a value that they have, and he's flipping it to what, what should you really be boasting in? So what do you usually think of when you see suffering and difficulty? Do we usually think, man, they must be really connected with Christ? God, they must be really, really growing spiritually. That's usually not it, is it? Sometimes we'll do things like we'll, we'll look down and did you hear that so-and-so lost his job? I could tell in small group, he never like helped pick up. He just sat there eating and eating and talking. He never helped when the rest of us picked up. He's kind of lazy. And so I, I bet he's lazy at work. Yeah. Oh, hey, Jim, how are you doing? Good to see you. We're back in group. Get a new job? That's what we do. We, we, we see something about them, and we don't go, man, maybe God's taking him through a season of affliction, um, a, a theology of suffering, a theology of adversity. And no one signs on for that, except Christ made it very clear that's probably what it will look like. We just happen to live in 4% of the world's population where for 70 or 80 years, that hasn't been the expected norm of life, right? So what do we think of when we see people suffering? Do we see suffering and weakness as something to be valued? We don't, do we? We try to keep as far away from it as possible. Why do you think this is so important? Because Paul knew if the messenger was discredited and not trusted, then the message would not grow them. If they start going through suffering and all they've heard about is, no, if God's for you, you'll only have prosperity and health and wealth and your life will only be good, what happens when your life turns out not so good or you go through suffering? Well, my God that was built up on that just collapsed. We've, we've had people, I remember when we had our um, it was um, our second child, Owen. 
went to our doctor and he was like seven foot two and he had a true peg leg and his, his voice was like this. Oh, how are you doing? Super, super deep voice, seven foot two. So when he walks in for the first baby, you're just like, oh my gosh, what have we got ourselves into? Like this guy needs his own like mini series. He's one of the most genuine, uh, kind, loving guys known throughout um, Tulsa as one of the best um, uh, baby deliverers, I guess. And so he was phenomenal. And so then uh, we have Sankey, and then we have, we're pregnant with Owen, and we're going in, and we heard, oh, man, um, he, he's got cancer. He's got a very serious, like, stage four cancer. And so we come in, he was a, he, he had lost probably over 120 pounds, so you can imagine a seven foot two frame losing 120 pounds, and um, he come in the room, and, and you know, and we were, you know, we were kind of just shocked at seeing him. But we we're so thankful he was there, and he was trying to just you know suffer through and everything. And he, he let after he initially come in the room and talked to us a little bit, and he goes back out, and then his nurse comes in, and so we just kind of ask you know like, hey, so how's how's he doing, you know, and, and with, with all the cancer, and, and she goes, no, we we're not claiming that, we're not claiming that over him, not not claiming what we we're not. We're not claiming that word cancer. So, so we, we know that that's around here in Tulsa. Like, it's true he has cancer, though. He's taking drugs for cancer. He clearly has the check marks of cancer. He has the cells in his body for cancer. It doesn't matter if you use the word cancer. Like, it is cancer. But they're thinking, like, if we don't do that and we whisper and we never say that word, maybe he'll be healed. That's not how it works. That's a teaching that has got off here in Tulsa, right? And so that's not what that's talking about. This guy was, was suffering, and, and, and he was going through things. And so if, if we change the message and we modify it to where a good godly guy gets cancer, you may die. A car wreck, you may die. Uh, Billy Joe Doherty, you know, Victory, huge church out there. God has used that church incredibly. Um, he's brought a lot of people, they've brought people in over the years that would teach from the stage that, you know, the, the, if you ever have any kind of um, illness in the name of Jesus, you're healed, just claim it. And if it doesn't happen, then either there's sin in your life or you don't have enough faith. No, we're all going to die. We live in a fallen world. There is things like illness. And so just if you, some of you have probably grown up around it, Jamie and I both come, we kind of come from both sides of that. We come from uh, Bible church type things. And we've been in the charismatic thing. And so we know that's out there. Well, Billy Joe Doherty gets that and dies. And man, he was a phenomenal man of God, one that God used powerfully here. He got cancer and died. Even if, if God would have healed him. Uh, and that case, he would have eventually died, right? He wouldn't have just kept on living. Like, now you're 98 and you got something else. You're 124 and you got something else. You're 156. But in the name of Jesus, we're going to keep doing this. That doesn't work, right? And so we've got to see that, that, that that's not what, what, what the message is about. We've got to understand when we change the message and we modify the message, something's off. And so when we make it all about prosperity, what happens when you're not prospering? When you make it all about health and wealth, what happens when they're not health, healthy or wealthy? If the church is promising that's the way it's going to be, it doesn't fit for the other 96% of the world's population. It doesn't fit for the other two-thirds world when you're talking about a prosperity gospel that comes in and says, hey, if you just believe this message, you're going to be just fulfilled with all the riches that you want. You name the Mercedes Benz you want. You name the 5,000 square foot house you want. How does that work for a lady in sub-Saharan Africa who has two little kids that are under four? She's lost six babies and she's in a tent and this baby is three months old, she's heard that this next week there's a chance. She's heard by Friday there may be a cart coming through that's bringing some porridge. And if she gets that porridge, she can feed this baby and maybe this one won't be the fifth one that's died. But we're telling her, hey, just claim it in the name of Jesus that you've got all the riches in the world. He owns all the cattle on a thousand, wheel, on a thousand hills in the name of Jesus. That's just not reality right? It doesn't fit. And so we've got to think through. We don't like to think of those things of suffering and weakness. Um, the foolishness of the cross. Think of this big picture of the foolishness of the cross. Think through the plan of God and what it looks like. The foolishness of leaving a small band after Jesus comes and dies. So here you have God in weakness and suffering and loss. That does not fit for a God, right? That, that's not what you would think of. Um, 
Think through the plan of God and the foolishness of leaving a small band of believers believing in the message of the sage, the miracle-working sage who died and is now invisible. That's a crazy plan. When all they did was make mistakes for three years and bail on him and betray him and couldn't understand what he was saying, right? That's a crazy plan. But we're here today because of that message, right? Because of the power of that spirit. That's what Paul's getting across to them. Um, Think through God's plan of having this message of salvation. Um, It's not how we think God would act. It's not the most valuable thing. It's actually the despised thing, weakness and suffering. And that's not the way that God would act, right? Unless we don't think like God does. And that's the deal. And Paul's trying to get them to see this. Um, It's a flipped kingdom. God planned and purposed weakness that leads to glory and honor and worship and love. It's exactly counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's a flip kingdom. So what matters in the world is not the values of this kingdom. So again, let me ask you, what, what impresses you? What is it that, that catches your attention? Is it tied to people's possessions, their power, their influence, their status? It's very, very easy. Remember puberty? Remember the, the glorious days of puberty? Being 12, 13, 14, 15, remember? So if you went to school and like it's cafeteria and like you, you just feel like an alien. So you have people who, you know, it's, it's like God had this fun period that he just puts people in that stage. And it doesn't last very long. It's kind of like in the book of Revelation, like if, if the tribulation would have lasted forever, no one would have made it through. So if puberty would have been over more than like two or three years, no one would have ever got married. So uh, you remember the kids that they, you know, like maybe it was their, you know, they're the one kid in class and their teeth, look like they, like they would fit better on a horse. Their teeth outgrew their head and their whole face and everything. And don't, I know you're trying not to laugh. You're not trying to think about that person. Those poor kids, or then the ones who, you know, just like zits hit up and then you're just like, and then someone would mention the word zit and it like everyone would just look at the one kid. Uh, sometimes for some people it was the nose. And the, I remember friends that they're like, oh my gosh, my nose is huge. And, and truly their nose was huge. And it was like, and you can't hide that one, right? Like if you have bad hair in puberty, like you're, you can get a haircut. You can change that. You can like hope like you're the swan that, that someday becomes beautiful but like if you got the nose and you're just like man it's going to be here for the rest of my life it's and they would tell me they were like hey thank you can get a haircut this isn't going away it's just going to keep growing and so um, mine was ears so mine was huge ears so my ears outgrew and still to this day I feel like um like everyone stares at my ears I think that's the first thing people look at and everyone's giggling and laughing behind my back and, and they don't like me because of my ears and so and I could do this thing where so it's my my right ear and so when you do the thing like the dumbbell and hold them out so I can do this so when I take my hand away, that one, that one goes back. This one's still there. So it still stays out there. And so when you're in, when you're in that time frame, um, you're always worried about, do people like me? Do think people think I'm cool? Will, will they like this about me? You're scared to death if, if people were to call out your weakness. Like, oh my God, look at his huge ears. Look at her nose. Oh my gosh, she is gargantuanly tall for a fifth grader, a seventh grader. Like you just people freak out, right? What's sad is that we, we, you probably know people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s as adults who are still living in that little mindset. They still want to be considered cool. They still want to be impressive. They still want to be liked by a whole group of people once they got to know them, if they were liked in that group, they would go, I don't even like that type of people. So people spend so much time trying to get with people that have qualities that they don't even like. So, um, and people, as adults, we still live in insecurities. When Christ came, he should have taken care of this and matured you, right? This is what Paul's getting with him. So we have people not impressive enough. Struggling with not pretty enough, not, not cool enough, not influential enough, not rich enough. I don't have the right stuff. I don't have the right um, friends. I don't have the right job. All these insecurities still rule. But shouldn't we have matured in, when we came to Christ where that doesn't affect me anymore? 
And the reason that plays in is so when, when people come and visit or there's neighbors around your house or people that are around your life, do they have to dress like you and look like you and, and be somewhat just like you to be loved on? Or can it be a place where the people who are the servants are treated just the same as the person that's, that's the head of the club. So one of the things, and I'm not, I'm not boasting about um, Metro here, one of the things I've appreciated in seeing the culture they've tried to create, so there's a lot of custodial staff, there's, there's some security people, and, and to see the way that, they, that a lot of the people treat the security here and the custodial staff the same way that they treat some of the highest administration. Some of those people have a voice in meetings and stuff in the same way that you would think this would just be our upper administration. So to treat people just as, as an equal value. Sure, that person has more weight in their authority and more weight in their decisions and more responsibilities, right? But this person's value is just the same as the foot of the cross. What if the church became a place like that? What if we, we valued, uh, our dream here is to have people from uh, half a mile over that may have a $1.5 million home sitting right beside the person that's living in an apartment that's $40 a month. That's beauty. Because in heaven, who do you think's winning? No one. In heaven, that person's like, you treated me the same way as you did all your cronies who you work with and play golf with. You treated me the same. And, it, and sometimes it's, it's the poorer people um, so that, that have a hard time. They're like, oh, I can't stand them just because they're rich. Do you see their car? I can't stand them. I'm sure they're snotty. I'm sure they're arrogant. I'm sure they're pitiful. And, and, and maybe it's flipped. Instead, so we've got to be a place where all people, we're not going on status and power and influence. We're, we're loving one another. And that's what Paul's trying to say to them. This is what we should be. And you're looking at me with afflictions thinking this can't even be from God. So do you see the dilemma that Paul's in? What are the true qualities that matter that we should consider impressive? Wouldn't it be those things that are, are being shown up by the Spirit that the, that the Bible brings up? These are the qualities that we would want. What is success in the church? What are the metrics that we use? What do we measure as success? What do we, have, what do we use to evaluate them? So many, many conversations that I have because of where we're at. So we've got three boys and there's usually like, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 parents, sets of parents around one boy. And then 20 or 30 sets of parents around another boy. 20 or 30 parents around another boy, right? So we're kind of new. So what do you think conversations tend to go to? When we start talking like, oh, you're a church planter, they all act like they heard of it first. And like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And then like, you know, five minutes later, they're like, uh, now, now what is a church planter? That doesn't make sense. Do you work with plants or what? And so um, then you start telling them, and what do you think 99 out of 100 conversations, what do you think they view as success? What do you think comes out in those 99 out of 100 conversations what is revealed as, oh, surely, so, so, so you're, you know about so-and-so church, right? You know about so-and-so church, right? And so what comes out, what's revealed is, oh, that's the one that 99 out of 100, that, that's their view of, that's what success is. What if 99 out of 100 times, as they're talking about that, and you can tell that's the first thing they think of, or second or third thing they think of as success, you're going, we're not aiming to be anything like that at all. What's that like? You immediately feel like, man, I, I'm out of the conversation. No, nothing's going to impress them, even in five years' time, because we're never going to try to be like that, right? Um, so let me ask you, what influences your view of what successful Christianity looks like or what a successful church is? Um, usually, like I said, people go into, you know, do you know about so-and-so church? Sometimes it's, it's celebrity, real well-known pastors. Sometimes it's, hey, did you hear? They've had 300 views on their services. I, I never, I never want to get to the point of having people that don't, are not connected in, in, in each other's lives, that I have no idea what's going on, that a, a plurality of elders has no idea of what they're, what they're doing in their life, that, that they're not coming to our groups, they're not in to where they're being captivated by Christ, where we know that they are being changed and transformed, where people are learning how to make disciples, that individuals and singles and couples and parents and, and mature people are, are growing and maturing and multiplying. That's what we want to do. And so it, it's not a goal of how big will, will the campus be? How many campuses will you have? How many views are you getting? Um, so um, is TikTok the new standard for whether a church is successful or not? You love your MySpace account? Oh, it's gone, isn't it? 
Five years, you know, internet, any, any problems, uh, any kind of thing, TikTok, there's, there's new ones coming, right? So what's trendy is not what we're trying to do. I'm not against TikTok or social media. God can use those, and he does use those things. Um, but the goal is not to be trendy. We, we've got to think through what, what, is the, what are the metrics that we're using for success. So just, just think through. So if you come pretty regularly, are you being transformed? Are you growing? Have you been growing in the last three months? Are you being challenged and confronted with your sin to where you're going to the Spirit and confessing that to God? God, I see I'm not lining up with the mirror of your word. Would you help me to change? Would you help me get over trying to do it myself? Would you help me to stop trying to just use my, my own self-will and self-discipline to, to this time I really, really mean it, God. This time you don't understand. I'm really going to... No, God, I'm weak. Would you help me here? Would you, would you show me what needs to happen? Would you bring a couple of people in my life that will, I can be accountable to and grow in that way? That's what we want to see happen. So we could look at lots of examples. Is Christ-like humility and brokenness and obedience and rest in him ever even really seen sometimes in our churches? And another step, are they valued? Humility and brokenness? Authenticity? No. Hide stuff. Put forward your, your, your best image, right? So we could look at lots of different things. We could look at the church in Corinth here, any number of leadership failures recently that we've seen. You see where pride and status and popularity. You could look at the, the Mars Hill um, episodes. I've been listening to some of the things that happened there, just the pride and the power and the status. Uh, major denominations. Uh, and, and for four to five decades, they used certain um, numbers as success. And then after 40 or 50 years, they had to come back and get real honest and go, hold it. We've got, you know, 100 million people that we've said were baptized and made professions of faith, bow your head, pray this prayer, repeat after me, and 100 million people are missing from our churches. Major denominations, they, they weren't in the church three months later. We got them to a rally. We gave away free iPads and pizza. They came, it worked. They prayed the prayer and they never came back. And now they're sitting in their home under the wrath of God possibly thinking that they're okay. That's not success. That wasn't the early church. And so we've got to think through, is the Bible, is the gospel being used by the Spirit to redeem and transform you, a people into joyful worshipers who, who know how to make disciples? Now, that's not the only thing, but that better be a big part of it, right? Not just filling up your emotional tank, not, not just a, a brand that you get to claim and put a little bumper sticker on, like, yeah, I'm a part of that, I'm part of that, I view them online. No, it's a people. It's not a building you go to. It's a people. Are you learning how to let those middle school cafeteria day thinkings stop controlling you to where you're okay to move beyond your shyness or your extrovertedness or your um, fear of others to open up and, and be real with people and to let people into your life, to be known, and then to get to the point of being vulnerable are we, are we becoming that type of people? That's scary, isn't it? And so people would say, man, that, that's terrifying. Yeah, that's why it's superhuman. That's why you can't just do it on your own. That's what the Spirit wants to do. Or you can stay isolated and fake and show up, right? And so God wants to do a powerful thing, and it takes him. So the things that, 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 that the church usually measures as its success, seating capacity, popularity, or you know, trending, professionalism, um, how many programs, how busy things are, the budgets. Paul knows that these people, they need a correct understanding of what it means to follow Christ. If they begin to see him in connection with Christ and his message, they will have a total paradigm shift. And that's what Paul's doing in his letter repeatedly. Um, so hard issues. Let me read this Brennan Manning quote. Brennan Manning is influenced. He's passed away now. He's a phenomenal... Uh, guy. So I think I got a quote. For over 20 years, I've read this. He says, I can't stand the cross. It's a denial of all that I value in life. I'm a proud man, sensual. I seek pleasure. Anyone else? Amen. 
You want to be honest? Proud. Seek pleasure. Sensual. Anyone? No, no. Bless the Lord, not me. Bless the Lord. We, we do. Can we sing another song? The cross approaches me. It says, you're wrong. Your life must take this shape. Not pop psychology. You're the greatest. You're the greatest. Go be a better snowflake. Be better for in Jesus' name. It approaches him and says, your life must take this shape. This is the only true interpretation of life. Life is true only when it takes this form. Paul says, we manifest the life of Jesus only if we carry his death about with us. He's talking about 2 Corinthians chapter 4 there. We are disciples only as long as we stand in the shadow of the cross. The master said that he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr, caught the meaning of this when he said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Organized religion has domesticated the crucified Lord of glory. Think through the weight of that sentence. What's Jesus to us? What's Jesus to, 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 to lost people, secular world, culture? What do they think of, of Christianity? Then think of the church. What do we think of, of Jesus? We've domesticated the Lord of glory. Turned him into a tame symbol. Viewed as just a church relic, the cross does not disturb our comfortable religiosity. Cross disturb you during the week? Is it calling you, bidding you to come and die? Is it bidding you to think through your selfishness, your self-seeking, your comfort? But when the crucified, risen Christ, instead of remaining an icon, he comes to life and delivers us over to the fire that he came to light, He creates more havoc than all the heretics, secular humanists, and self-serving preachers put together. If we were to live as if Christ actually is, we would have major problems. And it wouldn't be atheists, and it wouldn't be liberals, and it would be seculars, and it wouldn't be the whatever community you're afraid of or whatever political system That's why I'm not worried about all those things. What I'm concerned about is this version of Jesus that we accepted, that he's not this captivating fire that's not burning in us anymore. It's safe. And he's this pie-in-the-sky thing, arms folded, gave me a token. One day I get to pull out the token. Don't really have to be passionate. Don't have to really share him with others. Don't have to really live for him. Live kind of as I want to. Christianize the rest of my life. If indeed we lived a life in imitation of his, our witness would be irresistible. If we dared to live beyond our self-concern, if we refused to shrink from being vulnerable, if we took nothing but a compassionate attitude toward the world, if we were counterculture to our nation's lunatic lust for pride of place, and power and possessions. If we preferred to be faithful rather than successful, the walls of indifference to Jesus Christ would crumble. A handful of us could be ignored by society, but hundreds, thousands, millions of such servants would overwhelm the world. So what's Christ to you today? Is it just a, a moral oath Good deeds and bad deeds, if this judge is measuring up over you, watching as he's unattached and unengaged and and really, to be honest, probably pretty unlovable. Does anyone feel that way? I mean, we're supposed to say we love him, right? We're supposed to say, man, that's a sucky God. That's a low, weak, sucky God. And the only love you have for him is, well, I know the rule says I'm supposed to. And guess what? He knows the heart, doesn't he? He knows if it's a moral list. He knows if it's the, struff, the, the struggling and the suffering that you've been through and our hearts are so prone to turn. Why? Why would you do this, God? If you're good and you're loving, why? Why? 
So Brennan Manning, Manning nails it. What if we became trendy as far as giving more away instead of stocking up and buying up? What, what if we became, if it became the trend to find out what other people's needs were instead of always thinking only about ourselves, considering only our own needs, but instead thinking of others' needs? What if that became the new norm? So when you hear someone's going through something, immediately people are just like fighting and jockeying in position to help serve or to help think through how, how can we serve them? How can we help them? Instead of like, oh man, that really sucks. Too bad for them. Like that's in the church. We can't force that on all churches. We can't make that the norm for Christian culture across America, but we could make that our DNA. We could that make that our norm. What if we felt comfortable around people in higher classes than us without intimidation or jealousy? You ever feel that way around people that you're like, oh man, they're really rich, really powerful, really feel intimidated, feel jealous sometimes? Those are two things I go from between like, I'm really jealous of him, I'm still at the same time intimidated by him. Or I could just be thank you from Salisaw and just, he's, if he likes me, it's fine, or he doesn't, it's fine. And then people of lower classes than us without judgment or disgust. What if we valued humility and generosity and justice, relationships, people that are different than us? And again, you may say, thank you, that's really, really practically tough for me. Um, it may be impossible without supernatural empowerment. But that's what Paul's getting at within with these Corinthians. It's very tough for us. In Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, I don't think I have a slide on this, but this is what Paul has in mind. He actually quotes from it in 1 Corinthians, and he quotes from it in this book, 2 Corinthians. But Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich boast in his riches. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. That he understands and knows me. Great five years of prosperity, crashes, business crashes, looking for a job, wife gets some sort of illness, kids get diagnosed with something. I'm learning him. I'm loving him. I'm understanding and knowing him who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, even though you're going through those things. May not be. You may be in a period of 10 years when that's not happening, right? 15. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So do you see what I'm saying about addressing heart issues? This is what Paul is going to roll into in this letter. Um, the next slide was about in Philippians. So thinking through what we've been sold as the church, thinking through what Paul was dealing with with this church in Corinth. And here he comes going, I brought to you this message that, that at the day of judgment, you would be the ones who would say that this is what um, has been produced in this, that we see the love that you have for us and the love that we have. Look what God has done because we were enemies. And he goes into that second section showing them that in, in the 15 through 24, showing them that you thought that I was making decisions based off of um, worldly plans, off of the flesh. Instead, it was me trusting the Lord, being led by the Spirit, and God's circumstances allowed these situations to rise up to where your heart was revealed. You've got all kinds of sinful problems. You're much like your, your Corinthian culture. And that has to change. Didn't the gospel come and change you? And then he goes into that next little section, in two, one through four, where he's just telling them, hey, you thought that I, I was being uh, going to come in some harsh way. The reason I stayed away, not because of me being vacillating back and forth, actually it was an act of grace and love is the reason that I didn't do this. Are you getting my example, Corinth? Are you getting that God allowed this? Are you uh, seeing that we're the ones who brought the gospel to you? We're the ones who, who, who has exampled this for you, who have loved you? Everything that I'm doing is trying to love you. I know that you can't stand this right now. So he does a wonderful job of just kind of bringing them in in chapter one, at the start of chapter two, 
to see, first of all, is there a, a, a contrast between the, the culture that they're living in, the Corinthian culture that has invaded the church and they're thinking there and, and with the true gospel and what, what we measure as what is needed in the church. So Paul does a phenomenal job just kind of setting them up for that as we'll see in um, the rest of this. So mindset one is the church is I come and get filled up and feel great and the seats fill up and, and get, I got to be a part of a growing expansive, expansive success to be like those other buildings. We did it. Mindset number two is this is going to cost you. Our leader and savior, the guy that we say that we love and serve, said, if you want to follow me, die to yourself. Die to some of your desires. Die to some of your comforts. Die to some of your insecurities. Take up your cross daily. Come walk this path. Follow me. Whoever loses his or her plan of that life trajectory that you've had for a while, whoever loses that for my sake will find flourishing life. But whoever holds on to this is mine, I will do it this way. This life is mine. He's going to lose their life. And I know, I know because what that does in me, I don't even have to sell that. The Spirit brings that to us and says, that's what I'm calling you to. The Spirit comes to us and confronts us with that and says, that's what I'm calling you to. So we have a great opportunity. What a great opportunity in this area, in this time, to go, that's the kind of DNA we want. We want to be a people filled up with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. When things hit, suffering, weakness, loss, humility, that can be embodied in us through the Spirit. The gospel will lead us through that, whatever we go through. But we've got to get the gospel to those around us and not just, just sit in and be like the Corinthians, just allowed to go on in their own comforts, allow, allowed to go on their own self-seeking, measuring what's successful by what the world says is successful. So um, I hope that is a good um, opening chapter for you for um, Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians. Let me pray as we go into a time of the Lord's Supper. 